We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Apostolic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. 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 Greetings, everyone. Welcome to those of you that are in-house, and welcome to all of you joining us online today. My, it's good to have real-life people back in the room. And uh, so good morning, everyone, those of you especially in-house, yes. On this uh, first day of spring, well, March, March 21st, as I recall, it used to be the first day of spring, but I think spring started sometime yesterday afternoon. Anyway, spring is here. And it's going to be a beautiful week, they say, every day up past 10, 12, 14 degrees Celsius. We can take that, can't we? I have a pleasant surprise for you today, although Pastor Dave Rowe kind of ate into the surprise a little bit, but that's okay. Dr. Steve Lennox is here to preach to us today. And uh, I could say, this is a personal opinion, but I shared with everyone I know, he would be among the premier preachers in the Wesleyan Church worldwide. And we're, I'm thrilled to have him here today. Uh, in recent years, I have been doing interim pastoral work as I'm doing here at Crosspoint. So in the past five years, four times, I have welcomed him to the church where I was pastoring and had him preach, uh, do seminars on Saturday. Uh, he's in much demand. And uh, we're just thrilled that he's here. So I'm going to ask him to come right now, and I want you, uh, those of you especially in-house, give him a nice, warm Crosspoint welcome. Would you do that? Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here, although I hate those kind of introductions because, you know, I wish they'd say he, he's like yeah, mediocre, but maybe something will happen, and then a win is a win, right? But, well, we'll see how it goes. I understand that uh, a few weeks ago you played the video that I sent to you, uh, thanking you as a congregation for the support that you've given to Kingswood through the years. Uh, let me give you an update on that update. Uh, God continues to work on our campus in Sussex and beyond. We have programs that are available online, and I'm so impressed by our students and our staff, just the way they've adapted to the whole COVID thing and the regulations and restrictions. They're open to, to, to the power of God moving in their lives, and we're seeing it happen. So it's exciting to be at a place like that, and I'm so grateful to you. You've been a very supportive church through the years, and uh, I appreciate that. That means a lot. I, I will ask one thing more of you. This is the season of the year when young adults particularly are deciding what to do for next fall, many of them applying to colleges and making their decisions. Kingswood isn't for everybody. We're a Bible college, which means that our primary focus is on preparing people for vocational ministry, like Pastor John or Pastor David or Pastor John. And uh, we're also a place where an individual can come and get a good, solid foundation and then go on and do any number of vocational choices, teaching, nursing, whatever. 
as I've been describing Kingswood, has, has there been a name that comes to mind? Because many times it's just a suggestion. Hey, have you considered? Is all that the Lord needs in order to plug that into their consideration? So if, you, if, if the Lord lays somebody on your heart, if you would just bring Kingswood into the conversation as the Lord leads, that would be so helpful. We believe that the people are there because God's called them there. But we also believe that God uses God's people to help that call along. So if you would do that, I would appreciate it. I feel, like, um, I feel like I need to give a bit of a trigger warning because I'm going to use a passage of Scripture that you only ever hear at Christmas time. And uh, I'm a little concerned that when you hear this passage, you may start singing Christmas carols or begin to think about presents, or some of you may actually flip out because we've just gotten to spring and I'm taking you back months back to Christmas time. So just everybody be calm. It'll all work out. I have to go to this passage in Matthew chapter 1, though, because my topic to talk about today is that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We know this as well more familiarly as the virgin birth. And so I want to go back to a couple of passages, actually, that usually we, we reserve for Christmas time, but they're passages that explain this very important teaching of the church and actually a part of the Apostles' Creed. So if you've got your Bibles here in the sanctuary or at home, uh, it's Matthew chapter 1. It'll be on the screen, and you can follow along with me as I read. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together... She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And this particular prophet is the prophet Isaiah. And Matthew is about to quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So here's what we know so far. Jesus was born in the natural way, born of a woman, born just like everybody in this room and everybody watching online. However, though Jesus had a human mother, Jesus did not have a human father. He was conceived miraculously. And the text here and in the next passage that we read will make it clear that it was the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you probably thought when you heard that I was talking about the Holy Spirit that I'd be talking about the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on the church. But I'm talking about another manifestation, another appearing of God in the form of the Holy Spirit, one that really is foundational to everything else that the Spirit does in the New Testament, including what he does on the day of Pentecost. This comes through or by means of or from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not 
in a sexual sense. Nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament or anywhere else do we find the Holy Spirit being referred to as Jesus' Father. He is the means whereby it happens, is what the passage says. Now let's look at that next passage, and then we'll come again and talk about what we have gathered. This is Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. The first was from Joseph's perspective. This is from Mary's perspective. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Jesus was born just like you and I, he was fully human, not 50% human, 100% human. But because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, he is fully God. So the Holy One to be born to you, the angel said to Mary, will be the Son of God. That's what that means. And so what we've gathered from these two passages is that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Not 50-50, but 100-100. It's the Holy Spirit's work who makes this possible, not in a sexual sense, but in a theophany, a manifestation of God showing up. Now, those are the two passages that talk explicitly about this virgin birth or that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But there's a number of other passages, and we'll look at some, that imply that this is the case. One of those other passages comes from the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 1 begins, In the beginning was the Word, the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, the Son of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The second person of the Trinity, fully God. Verse 14, same chapter, John 1, and the Word became flesh. So when we're talking about the virgin birth, we're not talking about the beginning of the Son of God. We're talking about the point when, at which the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, joins with a human body in the womb of Mary and becomes Jesus fully human, and fully divine. Now, that's enough theology for one morning. Thank you very much. 
But we really need to unpack this a little bit more. Because, for example, we aren't told how it happens. How is it that this God-man is formed within the womb of Mary? How does, how does that happen? And Scripture doesn't tell us, which doesn't stop us from speculating. I mean, some people have said this is in vitro fertilization, that somehow this uh, fertilized egg was implanted into Mary. Other people refer to something known as parthenogenesis, which is asexual reproduction that happens mostly in insects and lower invertebrates. I saw one source that said it's, it, it does happen among mammals, but it's very rare, low viability, and only female offspring. But the problem with both of these views is that they don't capture the essential point, which the angel is very clear, is that this person that is born is both fully human and fully divine. If it was in vitro fertilization or the other, it would be fully human, that's it. So we don't know how this happens. It's, it's a mystery. That's not just my words. That's, that's the words of the early church. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in one of the passages where he implies the presence of the virgin birth, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, essentially says this is a mystery. Beyond all question, he said, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. It's a mystery. We don't, we don't know how this happened. But make no mistake, the early church believed that it happened. They were not wavering at all on this. They were convinced. And it wasn't because they didn't know where babies came from. They knew that just as well as anybody. They knew this was a miracle. And though they didn't know how it happened, they were convinced that it happened. I'm going to show you some quotes from St. Ignatius, who was the bishop of the church at Antioch, and he lived around 110 AD. So just to put that in context, that would have been within the lifetime of individuals who would have been alive when some of these events are going on, or at least shortly after that. So eyewitnesses are still present and around, and second-generation Christians would have been aware, and they were absolutely convinced that Jesus was born of a virgin. Listen to what Ignatius says. For our God, Jesus the Christ, was conceived in the womb by Mary according to a dispensation of the seed of David, but also of the Holy Ghost. Fully human, fully divine. Early second century. They're convinced. Here's what he says in another letter, being fully persuaded as touching our Lord that he is truly of the race of David according to the flesh, fully human, but son of God by the divine will and power, truly born of a virgin. Now, here's what we've said so far. Thanks for sticking with me. Here's what we've said so far. That the scriptures either explicitly or implicitly make it clear that Jesus being born of a virgin is fully human and fully divine, 100% and 100%. And the early church, though they didn't know how this happened, were convinced that it happened. Which brings me to this question. Why is it that if the early church believed this happened and believed it firmly, so many of us in the church today are like, eh, maybe it happened. 
Maybe it didn't. I mean, if you were going to shorten the Apostles' Creed, this would probably be one of the phrases that would be in jeopardy. We're not sure just what it's doing there. We're not sure just how important it is. So maybe it isn't that important. My question is why? Why is it that if the early church believed this so strongly, those of us in the church today take this kind of maybe not attitude? I, I think there's, a, there's several reasons. I'm just going to suggest five rather quickly. Here's the first. And I doubt there's anybody in the room that believes this. But there may be some who are just catching this online who believe that miracles cannot happen. If miracles can't happen, then this miracle couldn't happen. If miracles are impossible, then this miracle is impossible. And I think this is a view that some people take. They dismiss all miracles. Again, I don't think that's anybody in the room and maybe not anybody watching online, but here's why I mention it for two reasons, really. One is just to point out that if somebody holds that view, I know that you're doing that because you're depending on reason, but you're making a very unreasonable statement. You and I can only say that miracles can't happen if you and I know everything that happened in the past, everything that's happening in the present, and everything that will happen in the future. That's the only way we'll know that miracles can't happen. If, if we say that miracles can't, can't happen, that means that we know how all the processes work in the natural world. And nobody knows that. So it's rather irrational to say miracles can't happen. But here's the other reason why I just think this is worth mentioning. Because I think that view has kind of infiltrated the church a little bit. Like, like we'd love to have a Christianity that doesn't have elements of the miraculous. You, you talk about people being healed or some miracle taking place and it sounds so, so creepy and can't we just do away with that? I mean, haven't we outgrown that? Listen, if there is no miraculous, there is no Christianity. This is what the Apostle Paul said about the resurrection, which is the greatest miracle of all in the church. If there's no resurrection, don't listen to what we're teaching. Piteous. So just a plug for the miraculous. It happened, it happens. This is a miracle. Here's the other reason. I think that there may be some who just assume that the early church, well, they just misunderstood. Like, they... This can't happen. So they must have just misunderstood. Maybe they misunderstood this prophecy, this Isaiah 7, 14 prophecy. I mean, after all, they argue, this is actually a mistranslation. Now, if this is too much for you, just take a nap. I'll wake you up in a few minutes. Isaiah is a prophet who's speaking in Hebrew, and he writes in Hebrew. Isaiah 7, 14, written in Hebrew, when Isaiah says the virgin will conceive, the word he uses that's translated version is the Hebrew word, Alamah, it means young woman. Several centuries later, the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek. This is going to be the Bible that the early church uses. And when the translators, Jewish translators, translate the Hebrew into Greek, and they come to this word Alamah, which means young woman, there's another word for virgin, they translate it with the word virgin. Or we might say mistranslated. And lo and behold, the early church, when they're reading their Bibles, they come across this quotation, this mistranslation of Isaiah's word, and they begin to read the life of Jesus in light of this prophecy. It's an honest mistake, but it's a mistake. 
No, it's not. For one thing, it makes a whole lot more sense to say that the facts, facts that would have been corroborated easily by any number of eyewitnesses, facts that would have been corroborated easily, it's far more likely to say that the facts found the prophecy rather than the prophecy found the facts. Especially if the early church is being challenged on this point, as you know they were. They held on to this view with determination in the face of criticism. Can you imagine them doing that if it had just been a mistake? Furthermore, it wasn't a mistake. It's a mistake to think it was a mistake. It wasn't a mistranslation. Alama isn't the usual word for virgin, but it can be used for virgin. It's not a mistake after all. Some people say the early church misunderstood because, well, have you ever heard of Hercules? Where does Hercules get his great power to do these seven wonderful things? Well, he gets it from the gods. See, what happened was there were gods and then there were human women and the gods had sex with the human women and that's where these heroes come from, like Hercules. And the argument goes that the early church, well, they had a hero. So they needed to have some kind of a miraculous story surrounding his birth and so they just took these stories and they told the story of Jesus. And it's just a mistake, but it's a well-intentioned mistake. Wrong. If you've read these stories, you know they're very different than the stories I read to you. Very sexual. This is not sexual. It's not a misunderstanding. It's far more likely that the facts, again, facts that would have easily been corroborated by those who knew them personally, far more likely that the story that we've just shared with you is the actual story. And who knows but that these other stories aren't nature's way of copying the original. But the point is, the early church didn't misunderstand. They didn't use a mistranslation. They didn't borrow from these ancient myths. So we got to press on. Why is it that the early church has a kind of loose-handled grip on this? Well, it may be because there's only two passages where it's explicitly taught. The two I've read for you. But listen to me carefully. If we were to take the virgin birth out of the story of Scripture, the New Testament would collapse. It's that significant as a foundation for so much of what the New Testament has to say. Don't be counting passages. The foot washing of Jesus is only mentioned one time in the Gospels. Do we dismiss that because it's only found one time? It's not how many times it appears. If this is the word of God, then it only takes one time for it to be true. All right, wake up. Because now I want to bring it to where I think the real problem lies. Why is it that the early, that the early church was so convinced in the face of opposition that this was true, and yet in the church today, we're not so sure? Here's the reason. Because I don't think any of us could really explain what difference it makes. Yeah, yeah, virgin birth. So what? What difference does it make? I think that's, I think that's How many of you have mangers, creches that you put up at Christmas time? Can you see your hands? How many do you have? Just one. Just one? One? We had 10 in the first service. How many at home? Email in. If you have more than 10, Pastor John will give you a special treat. <laughs> All right. Here, here's the deal with a creche. 
There are essential comp components to the creche, okay? You gotta have Mary. She's the lady in blue. And you probably should have Joseph. You definitely need the baby. And you need the manger because you got to have some place to put the baby in. Everything else is optional. If you have shepherds, great, gather them around. If you have wise men, great. Even though they weren't there, it's great to have them in your creche. Uh, any animals? Got animals? Bring them in, bring them in. Camels? Okay, if you, even if you have one camel at the creche, that's great. Optional, but great to have. I think for the church, the virgin birth is like a camel at the creche. Optional. Just not sure what it's doing there, but great to have it. In fact, Isaiah says this is going to be a sign for you. And if you got a sign, it makes sense to pay attention to where it's pointing. So what difference does it make that Jesus was born of a virgin? In the time I've got left, I want to mention four ways that I think this is the most relevant thing you could hear today. Here's the first. The virgin birth explains how Jesus can be fully human and fully divine. It's implied throughout Scripture. If we didn't have these stories and these two passages, we wouldn't know how this takes place. Now, at least we have an idea. Not all the details, but we at least have some idea of how the, the virgin birth produces this God-man, this, this one who's both fully human and fully divine. You say, Steve, all right, all right, we got that. What difference does that make? Okay, here. If you want to say something truly radical in a post-Christian ABC culture, anything but Christian, if you want to say something truly radical in a culture like ours, say this, Jesus is Lord most radical thing you can say. You'll get canceled for saying that. That Jesus is Lord of government. That Jesus is Lord of big money. That Jesus is Lord of our desires. That Jesus is Lord of our emotions. That Jesus is Lord of the bigwigs. That Jesus is Lord of me. That's the most radical thing you can say these days. The Apostle Paul doesn't explicitly refer to the virgin birth, but in a passage where it's all throughout, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, here's what the Apostle Paul says, that though Jesus was fully equal to God, he did not consider it equality with God that was something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He was found in fashion as a human being. And he didn't just come to be a human being. He came to be the very lowest of human beings and even to die on a cross. But that God, seeing what Jesus had done, highly exalted him and gave him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. Now, that is not what people want to hear. People want to hear that Jesus was a nice teacher. He was a good man. He showed us the way to love each other. Full stop. I love what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. He said that Jesus and Scripture never gave us that option. Anybody that claimed 
the things that Jesus claimed. Anybody that said, I and the Father are one. Anybody that said before Abraham was, I am. There's only three options. A good teacher is not one of them. A liar is. Anybody that claimed what Jesus claimed is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord of all. If he's a liar, ignore him. Criticize him. If he's a lunatic, make fun of him. But if he's Lord, then you've got to bow your knee. And every knee will bow. For some of us, it's going to be the fulfillment of our lifelong ambition to be able to bow before Jesus. For others, it will be something less. But every knee will bow. You talk about relevance. This is the most important decision you will make in your life. What will I do with Jesus? And the virgin birth helps us understand why it is that every knee will need to bow. So that's one. Here's the second. The virgin birth is super relevant because it demonstrates the significance of being human. That God chose to become a human says something about what it means to be human. I love these words of St. Augustine. Men, despise not yourselves. The Son of God became a man. Despise not yourselves, women. The Son of God was born of a woman. The incarnation, the virgin birth, is a reason to celebrate what it means to be a human being. And you say, Steve, the problem in our culture is not that people are devaluing human life. The the problem in our culture is that people are making too much of being human. We've, We've got us up above God. Well, that is a problem. But paradoxically, at the same time we've got ourselves above God, we are devaluing human life. Or else we wouldn't be aborting millions of babies every year. Millions of human lives. Or else we wouldn't be debating in the halls of parliament whether we should extend permission to euthanize individuals. My dad, some of you know, my dad just died about a month ago of bone cancer. I got the chance to see him when we were in Florida last December. And I watched the tremendous strain that this put on my family and on him to be dying put this whole euthanasia thing in a different light for me. I came home and saw an announcement from Evangelical Fellowship of Canada saying where this decision was relative to the Senate here in Canada and where it was moving. And so I got out my note card and I wrote a note to my Minister of Parliament. And I said, please oppose this. I have seen the cost on a family of caring for someone dying of a disease like bone cancer, but life is too precious for us to take it in our own hands. But this whole devaluing of human life has an even more deeper relevance. Some of us take our lives and we have a section that is the spiritual part of it. This is the stuff that God cares about. We come to church, we read our Bible, we pray, and then there's everything else. How we treat our spouse, how we treat our bodies, how we treat our relationships. That's all stuff that doesn't really count in God's economy. 
the virgin birth said, it all counts. Humanity matters. Your body image matters. How you exercise matters. How you eat matters. How you treat people around you matters. How you treat your coworkers matters. How you think about yourself matters. It all matters because the virgin birth celebrates what it means to be a human being. It all matters to God. Here's the third. The virgin birth, this conception by the Holy Spirit, is significant, very significant to us. Not only because it helps us to understand what it is that Jesus is Lord, and not only understands what it means that you and I are human, but also what it means to be redeemed. We've been singing about salvation. But there would be no salvation if Jesus were not fully human and fully divine. See what I mean? To be so foundational to everything else. Jesus was fully human. He was perfect. And he came to this earth to live the life that you and I didn't, couldn't. No one ever did. Right from the very beginning, from Adam on to the present, we've been dropping the ball. God said, I want you to love me and love others. And we've been dropping the ball ever since the beginning until Jesus. And Jesus shows up and he lives the life you and I were meant to live. He loves God perfectly, and he loves his neighbor like no one ever did. It, it's almost as if all the mistakes that all the humans had ever made through all time are just gone when one guy gets it right. And then they killed him. They didn't drag him kicking and screaming from the Garden of Gethsemane. He had every opportunity to run for his life. He chose to stay and be led to his death. A perfect sacrifice. A willing sacrifice for our sins. Not his own. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who knew no sin to become a sin offering for us fully human, so he could be our sacrifice for sin. But even if Jesus had just been fully human and had given his life voluntarily, perfect life, given it voluntarily, it could not have atoned for all of our sins. He could not possibly have borne the weight of God's wrath at sin. He could not possibly have brought all those sins if he had not been fully God. And as fully God, he was able to bear the weight of God's judgment for us. But even more to the point, if Jesus had just done this as a human being, we would know how much Jesus loved us, but not how much God loved us. But now we do. Because it wasn't just Jesus hanging on the cross. It was Jesus, the Son of God, hanging on the cross. Jesus showed the full extent of his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Talk about relevant. There would be no salvation if there weren't the God-man. And there'd be no God-man if there weren't the virgin birth. Virgin birth tells us who Jesus is and why our knees should bow and will bow. Virgin birth tells us that it's great to be a human being, that God honors what it means to be a fully alive human being. The virgin birth tells us how this salvation comes to us. 
and one more. The virgin birth tells us what's possible for the Holy Spirit to do. That question that Mary asked, how can this be? How can this be? How can this happen? Is a question that's asked every day in your home and mine. Your circumstances. How can this be? How can it be that I'm infertile? How can it be that I'm single and I want to be married? How can it be that my son or daughters walked away from the faith? How, how will they come back? How can it be that my son or daughter or grandchild will have nothing to do with me? I don't know what's going on in their lives and I don't know why. How can this be? How can it be that I can lose my job after 30 years with the company and how am I supposed to live now? How can it be that we as a church can get through this COVID? Everybody's asking this question. How? And the answer is the same. With the Holy Spirit, nothing's impossible with God. The word of the Lord for you this morning is, because Jesus is born of a virgin, you and I can claim nothing is impossible with God. Whatever it is, whatever it is that's prompting you to ask how, the answer is the same. Nothing is impossible with God. Talk about relevant. Come on up. So it is just a Christmas passage. But I hope by now you agree with me that this is a Christmas passage that works all year. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to reflect for these moments on what it means that you were conceived by the Holy Spirit. We confess that it isn't just a camel at the creche. It's more central than we knew. But more than just what we know, Father, I pray that you would allow us to take this truth home to our hearts and to live in light of the fact that though we have our house, Nothing is impossible with you. In Jesus' name, amen.